This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Seeks to be defined by grace, grace, grace community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. God carries and holds many different names. There are over 100 different names for God given to us in Scripture. And today we're going to spend time, though, on the one name that He Himself gives when He is straight up asked, what is your name? And what is God saying to us about His attributes through that name He chooses to speak? So if you turn with me to Exodus 3, when we hit this spot in Scripture, God's people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, had been flourishing so much in Egypt that the powers that be made them their slaves. The Egyptians were threatened because this minority was becoming a majority, and to protect their power, they set up this system to oppress them. But in the oppression, God grew them stronger, so much so that the Egyptians dreaded them dreaded what they represented, dreaded what they threatened. And so Pharaoh, in his frustration that his violence was not ending this people, enacts this horrible law that all of the baby boys born to the Hebrews should be killed. But there were two courageous Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua, who resisted and broke the law, defying the government officials. Out of their reverence for God and in disobedience to earthly powers, they risked their own lives to protect the lives of their baby boys. And one of the boys born into this systemic violence was Moses. His life saved and protected in violation of the law. And then due to the bravery of his sister, some providential events, Moses is taken into the home of one of the oppressors of his people. Moses was saved by several women before he was even a toddler, and then he ends up being raised as one whose identity is caught between two cultures, two different ethnic groups, two different religions. He's raised, in essence, between the oppressed and the oppressor. I can only imagine, and some of you probably really understand what that could have been like for him to be caught between two worlds like that. And as Moses becomes an adult, one day he comes across one of the oppressors who he was raised with, beating one of the oppressed, his actual people. And many of you know he kills the Egyptian, tries to cover it up, and realizing he has been found out, he flees from the consequences of his actions. He flees the only home he has ever known, and he ends up in this foreign land where he builds a new life. In the midst of all of this, his people, the Israelites, continue to groan and cry out under their oppression. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 says, After a long time the king of Egypt died, and the Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites. And God knew. And it is here 
in chapter 3 that we pick up with Moses. It says, Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. Here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Moses, we pick up here, is keeping sheep when he spots this bush on fire not burning up. Some Jewish scholars think that this sort of is meant to represent God's people, that they are being put through the fire of slavery and yet they are not consumed. So Moses investigates, and here's his name called out, which amazingly, he just answers instead of running away. And he's told to take off his sandals because he is on this holy ground, which gives us a really strong indication of who this is. The removal of shoes is supposed to demonstrate that one is not even worthy to share space with the other. So we have God here identifying himself first by noting his own holiness and Moses' unworthiness. Second, we read here that he recalls his faithfulness in the past. God shares, hey, this is my storyline. And God then says, as his people live in suffering, 
as they're living in this oppression, he is well acquainted with them. He knows the hardship and the struggle and the pain that is being inflicted upon them. It says he knows what the oppressors are doing. God says, I have seen, I have heard, I know. And I'm going to do something about it. And Moses, I've decided you are actually going to be a big part of my plan for how I'm going to release my people. And Moses says, your servant is ready. Take me through anything. I'm here for it. Not quite so much. Moses immediately in this phrasing here is to this God that he's not even worthy to share space with. This phrasing is basically kind of him saying, who am I in terms of you've got the wrong guy. I am so thankful for how scripture gives us so many reluctant servants. It would be so much pressure if all we had were examples of unwavering faith. There's something really encouraging that when God says, I'm going to do the absolute impossible through you, that Moses kind of says, hard pass. Many of you know, if we were to read further in Exodus 3 and 4, Moses has a list of reasons for God as to why he is actually not the right pick. And Moses tends to get a lot of flack for this, but I really feel him here big time. How many times do you kind of sense the Spirit leading you somewhere or to something, and you have sort of a a sense of dread because you know what it will take? You know what it's going to cost you. You know how hard it is going to be. And we tend to be pretty good at having reasons or excuses ready for why we'd like to pass on it. Moses is approached by God here in a very unexpected way, and yet he has all of these excuses ready. But as you would see in this story, that his fear, his doubt, his attempts to weasel his way out of this does not make God count him as unfit. Your qualifications for the tasks and the work, the path God has for you in his plans, your qualifications don't come from you. They come from him. In God's work and ways, your qualifications rest in him. So you can let go of those excuses, that ever-running list in your head that's holding you back from fully obeying in him and walking in what he has for you. Even your doubt cannot deter a good God from choosing you and using you. Because Moses does have some fair excuses, but in chapter four, none of those make God pull back and say, oh, you're right. I hadn't thought about how they might not believe you. I hadn't thought about the fact that you're not really keen on speaking in public. God doesn't have to pull back his plan because of his people, because his plan doesn't rest on Moses. When God has work for us to do, what matters most is not who we are and what we bring. What matters most is whose we are and who is with us and who his plan rests on. It's not us, it is God. God's plans are on him and he is always a sure thing. And just how much he is a sure, steadfast thing, he reveals to Moses when asked about his name. Again, chapter 3, verse 14, God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Now, Moses' question of if they ask me what your name is, what do I say? 
It's not attitude, it's not snark, and it's not even ignorance. We have to remember that Moses has come from Egypt, and there were over 2,000 deities in the Egyptian pantheon. And it wasn't like they only thought about those gods for one clean hour a week when they decided to worship. The gods were interwoven into every aspect of their lives. They explained everything. They explained the weather and illness and the elements, success, bad things that happened. The gods were interwoven into every aspect of their culture and daily way of life. And this wasn't just for the Egyptians, but for the Israelites as well. They have been living in sort of this shared space. And as we know then, um, different beliefs infiltrate. So, Moses says, that's a world of many gods. Which one are you? God, they're going to ask me which one this is. So what is your name? How do I answer them? As Moses struggles with what lays before him after running away from his past, God doesn't reassure him by reminding Moses of how special or gifted he is. As Moses struggles with what is before him while carrying the weight of pain from the past, God reveals to Moses who God is. Because when life is pressing down, when fearful things are at hand, focusing on how we should be enough is not going to help us with what we really need, and it's not going to be sufficient for the long haul. What we need most in those times is to focus on the nature and being of the God that is with us. So God is saying, I'm going to have you go up against the premier leader, one viewed by his people as if he's a God. I'm going to have you go against the one who has enslaved your people for 400 years. I'm going to have you go back to the place where you sort of lived with this confusing identity to go back to the place where you fled the consequences of your actions. And to equip you, Moses, for this task, I'm giving you my name this name. He doesn't coddle Moses. He doesn't give Moses um, this nice little plan so that Moses can have the time and the space to reflect and get into the right headspace. He doesn't say, Moses, first we're going to work on every area where you're carrying brokenness so that I can fix you and then you can do my work. God has a God-sized task for his child and he says, what you need is me in my identity. What you need is what's wrapped up in this name of mine. God is enough in that. He is enough in and of himself for whatever is before us. So, in saying I am who I am, what actually is God saying about himself here? What is in this name that he gives? So, in the Hebrew, I am who I am is these, it's these four letters. So the English equivalents to the letters would be Y-H-W-H. So we pronounce it Yahweh as the most agreed upon pronunciation, but in the original Hebrew, there were no vowel sounds. So even that is a best guess. This is considered to be the divine name, God's most holy name. So holy that across time, it is not pronounced out loud by many Jewish people. 
This is the most common name for God in the Bible. It is used 7,000 times. And the second most used name is far behind at 2,500, which is the name Elohim. Often in English, when your text should say Yahweh, it is rendered as Lord. But Lord falls so short here. This word Yahweh comes from the Hebrew Ha-Yah, which is to be, to become, to exist, or to come to pass. In Hebrew, this verb actually only exists in the past and the future. It's not supposed to exist technically in the present, even though many of our English translations make this a present tense. So what phrasing would be actually a little more accurate than I am who I am? Many Jewish scholars agree it should be, I will be what I will be. Other phrasings some Jewish scholars claim are, I will be where I choose to be, or I am and will continue to be. I bring existence into existence, or I will bring being into being. These all ring very philosophical, like this is God's version of I think, therefore I am. But to just dwell on this as purely philosophical is also to miss the point about what God is saying about himself in this divine name. Because Yahweh is meant to be a personal name, a personal name that describes God's being and activity and presence to and for his children. This is not a detached name for us to just mull over when we want to meditate on it. It's personal and conveys an intimate and holy nature of a God present with us. Many Jewish scholars agree that I will be what I will be could also be like God is saying, my nature will be evident from my actions. Which makes a lot of sense considering where we see it here. God is assuring Moses the magnitude of who I am is proven by what I do, how I will make the impossible happen. So God's name carries with it that his existence proves who he is. Our God, who is not obligated to prove himself to us, is consistently doing so in everything he does. He's already proven and continues to. So kind of another way to put it is we have a consistent, faithful presence of a God who is the definition of the traits that he demonstrates. And in this, he is reliable. God doesn't just show attributes. He is those attributes. In Yahweh, God is saying, I don't just display mercy. I am mercy. I don't just display love. I am love. I don't just display justice. I am the definition of justice. I display wisdom and I am wisdom. I display power and I am power. He is the absolute standard of truth, goodness, compassion, and strength. 
as Yahweh. He is the one single being that does not have to look to anything or anyone else to determine if something is right or true or good. As Yahweh, his being is the standard and definition of it all. I will be what I will be. He is not just the source of life. He is life. All existence hinges on him as he is the only one who is completely self-existent. God's presence does not depend upon anyone or anything else, and he is the only entity in the universe that is like that. He doesn't need anything to exist, and yet everything that exists depends on him. He brought it all into being, and he keeps it there. Yahweh means he is completely independent, needing no one or nothing to support him, uphold him, or counsel him. He is a constant, free of constraints. He cannot grow or be altered or improved upon. He never gets worn out or tired, is always strong and always in charge. I will be what I will be means he is absolute reality. He wills it, makes it. Reality rests in him and comes from him. His state of being is present even outside of time and space. He is other, beyond what our minds can comprehend, and yet he chooses to be with us. You know, you may waver, I may waver, struggle at times in my feelings about God, in my posture toward Him, in our faithfulness to Him. But if you're in covenant relationship with Him, this is the nature that holds you there. A Yahweh who is self-existent, the definition of good and right, the one who will be what He will be. Talk about security, as this is the power that has you, that hangs on when you feel like you cannot. This is the security of the one who is also moving to reconcile all that is broken back to himself. And if this is the scope of who he is, no wonder Jesus was so controversial because he was walking around identifying himself as Yahweh. To identify with Yahweh is a bold claim, so it kind of makes sense that the religious leaders were so up in arms and calling him blasphemous. But on the other side of that, how much more profound does this make Jesus to understand that he, as he walked this earth, was embodying, I will be what I will be. Jesus's very name in the original language, Yeshua or Yahshua, Yah is part of that name. So Jesus's name literally means Yahweh saves. Jude 5 is so bold as to connect Jesus as the one who saved a people out of Egypt. Jesus claims this for himself. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one, and so on. And Jesus himself often says, I am, which in the Greek was this unusual turn of phrase. And yet it comes out of Jesus's mouth a lot. And when you're hearing Jesus say, I am, it is intentionally written to be an echoing of this Yahweh. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. 
I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. When talking to the Samaritan woman, I am. When surrounded by enemies in the garden, I am. And each time he voices this, Jesus is laying claim to this voice of Yahweh at the burning bush. Which, how much more is the fact that Jesus willingly went to the cross shocking when you consider it is the one who holds the name and attributes of Yahweh? He wasn't just undeserving because he was sinless. He was undeserving because he was Yahweh. Because he exists technically beyond what is physical. His presence is more than what our minds could even hold. All existence is wrapped up in him, whether it acknowledges him or not. And in being Yahweh, he's able, if he chooses to, to operate outside of what is ugly and painful and difficult in the world. And yet Yahweh says, I'm coming in. I'm entering in to handle things on behalf of and for my people. In Exodus 3, as Yahweh, he comes to Moses and he says, I'm coming down to release my people from slavery and bring them into freedom. And in Jesus, Yahweh again comes down to release his people from captivity and bring us into freedom. His existence outside and beyond it. And yet he chooses to go where he needs to go, to come here where he needs to come, to take on what is physical and bear the hardship. So all the pain in the world can be healed. So all that is broken can be fixed. So all that is lost can be found. And by his spirit, he continues to, as Yahweh, enter into our current struggles, our current pain, and our current hardships, even though he doesn't have to because he is so beyond at the same time. How can we question? How can we doubt that God loves us when the reality of the one so grand that holds Yahweh, one who carries all that that name holds, he opts to be present? For you in the pain, the grime, the loneliness, the heartache, and the struggle. He's the last being, the last entity that ever should do that, and yet Yahweh does. This is our God. One who shows up, was present for the Israelites in their suffering, is present for us in our suffering. And when God reveals himself as Yahweh and comes in, It's not him operating above it. He's infusing himself into this for the benefit of his people. People can be dependent upon sometimes to be what they should be for us. God can be dependent upon always to be who he should be for us. He's proven that again and again already through his actions. Often God's character is proven to us through trials, pain, and hardship. I think sometimes we can miss where he has done that because we have our own expectations, we have our our own ideas, our own hopes for outcomes. So we really do need to take care to check where we might be getting in our own way of seeing through to where God has already proven, where God has already been faithful, where Yahweh has already been present, 
May our God give us eyes to see that rightly because us seeing how he's proven himself in the past does affect and dictate how we move into future. As you consider what the next days, weeks, or months could hold for you, where are you feeling the most fearful, the most unsettled? Where are you dreading what may come to pass? And consider that. Be honest in that. And then also as you hold those things, consider what Yahweh has proven in the past. Consider that Yahweh already exists in your future and that He will not change no matter what comes your way. Remember that Yahweh's existence centers and anchors all of it, anchors you in the midst of it. Ask the Spirit to help the reality of Yahweh inform where your uncertainty and doubts and fears lie. Where you are struggling with unbelief, ask Yahweh to help you to believe. We can bring anything to God as Moses did, honesty, doubts, and fears, but also remember the holy character of who you're bringing that to. He's not just this passive listening ear. He is beyond, he is above. Remember that when you bring those things before him where you stand is holy ground. You're not even worthy to come before him. And yet, he invites you there. which shows you an awful lot about how he feels about you. Calling out to you even when you're not looking for him as he calls out to Moses from that bush. So listen up, friends, answer and come and receive and allow yourself to be moved and affected by what his name carries and how Yahweh with you is present to inform the challenges and struggles that are before you right now. I will be what I will be. Is our God consistently revealing himself to the world and to us in times of joy? in times of pain, when we celebrate, and when we sit in darkness. Yahweh is our security, our confidence, our hope, and our Redeemer. So thanks be to Him that no matter what He will be, what He will be. And what He will be is always enough for us. Please pray with me. Yahweh, who do we have in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that we have that we could desire besides you. Our hearts and our flesh may fail, but Yahweh, you are the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. So we ask that you would reveal to us where we are needing it most right now, where we are struggling with what we've carried from the past, uncertain with what is in the future that we would be looking to you to be enough because we know you already are. Father, we need the help of the Spirit for us to really even understand, to feel, to see, and to know who it is that you are. We need you to open our hearts and our minds. And so I ask, Father, that you would help bring us to a posture, a heart space and a head space where we can be open to receive 
the presence that you have already settled over all time and eternity that we have access to because of the kindness of your son. What I'm asking for, Father, is that you would help us to just reach out and receive what is already present, what will never change. Help us to receive you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Please join me for the benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, according to the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, to him be glory both in the church and in Christ Jesus, now and forever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.